You're listening to Go Dig a Hole. This is your host, Christopher Sims. This show is your archaeology toolkit, where I'll bring you resources to kickstart your career in archaeology. If you're still in school, thinking about going back, just getting started, or want to take the next step, Go Dig a Hole has you covered. All right, now let's get on with the show. Welcome to another episode of Go Dig a Hole. I'm your host, Chris Sims. Today on the show, I'm joined by Robin Lacey, a master's student at Memorial University of Newfoundland, and we're going to talk about burials, blogging, and social media and archaeology. Awesome. And let's hear a little bit about your research uh, for, for grad school. Are you working on the Fairyland Burial Ground? Yeah, so that's that's like half of my thesis. There's a lot of it's probably a little bit too long for a master's thesis, actually. Um, <laughs> I am sort of looking at the relationship between how colonial settlements that were founded by the British in North America um, organized their original settlement layout with like a burial space inside of it or near it um, because they didn't have like a pre-existing European settlement there. They were sort of able to start these settlements based more on how they wanted to see it instead of how it was already presented to them by the people that used to live there. Ah. Uh, <laughs> not, not that they're, we're counting the indigenous peoples, of course. Um, <laughs> right. No, that doesn't happen <laughs> in colonialism. <laughs> no, <laughs> they were like, this is empty, uh, which is horrible. But yeah, so I'm looking at the colonial settlement organization um, and sort of like, yeah, the spatial relationship between living and death spaces. Um and I looked at 43 settlements on the coast of America from Virginia up to Maine, and then 20 settlements on the east coast of Newfoundland on the um, Avalon Peninsula area, and sort of looked at the relationship between the burial grounds and the original settlement layout, as much as could be determined from maps um, and records and everything, uh, and accounts from the time, and sort of were they putting it beside a church or not, or was it on an elevated space or outside of town or in the center of town? <laughs> um, there was a list of questions that was applied to every uh, aspect of the burial landscape that I could. And I made a statistical frequency analysis model based on that data and then looked for patterns in what certain groups were doing, um, like Catholics versus Anglicans or different territories um, in colonial period New England, and then applied the patterns that came out of that uh, study to looking for the burial ground at Fairland. Oh, cool. So it kind of built like a predictive model? Yes, exactly. Nice. And what were some of the patterns that emerged? Um, it well, The main thing that I determined with it was that it works way better if you look at a regional rather than like a com just temporal scale. Uh-huh. So if I'm comparing like settlements founded by the Massachusetts Bay Company, as opposed to settlements founded by the Virginia Company, there's a lot more um, of statistically significant data that comes out of that than just saying like the entire East Coast for the whole of the 17th century was doing X. Um, but the main overall, <laughs> they all had a couple similar patterns. And it was more like central locations were uh, the most common and then Eastern was the second most common from the center of the town to put a burial. And if they could put it on an elevated piece of land as opposed to at the same level as the rest of the settlement, that they would do that. And those are the two 
overarching themes that I was seeing. Um, I was really hoping that looking at fortified settlements specifically, because Fairland had a, a wall and a ditch around it, would give something really significant as to like outside or inside of the walls themselves. That was sort of something I was hoping on uh -huh. seeing um, a pretty significant difference. But if you only look at the fortified settlements that I studied, it was 50-50 split <laughs> inside or outside of the walls. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I'm saying interesting. I'm sure, like, you probably ran through the whole gamut of, like, emotions from, like, disappointed and angry to kind of, like, okay, well, uh, <laughs> let's go with what we've got. So what what were you expecting before you went into the research? I was more, I was sort of expecting the fortified settlements to have more, more of, like, a play on whether or not people were burying their dead within the town core because if it's fortified it definitely has a very defined core to the settlement um and a lot of people were saying oh they would put it outside but that's sort of i think a concept that comes from considering our current relationship with like burial spaces in western society and that it turns out through the data and also through just sort of the beliefs of people in britain in the 17th century that keeping the dead close to home wasn't something that they were concerned about like avoiding <laughs> so having looking it basically said that like looking in the center of a settlement is just as likely or more likely to have people being buried there than really far away which is what we do now more more often than not that's pretty cool so Let's hear more about the kinds of people who were at this settlement. You had mentioned that they were coming over from Britain. Or what kinds of like demographics were you able to suss out of the information? Um, so we have we have a bit of records. Um, unfortunately, most of the records from Fairyland are just letters mm -hmm. that like several specific people wrote back and forth, um, and there's not a lot of information beyond those. Um, we know that the first group of people, I think there was 10 or 12 people that came over um, with Captain Edward Wynne, who was a Welsh captain um, in 1621. And they came over and started the settlement. And presumably that would have been like a bunch of male sailors or workmen. Um, I don't know if we have the records of all of their names. We've got a couple of their names from a census. Um, and then later on, a couple, a couple years later, they sort of Edward Wynne had established the settlement and we think they may have been going there with somewhat of a predetermined plan which seemed to be the trend in the early 17th century people would like lay out what they wanted to do before they went there because um, they built things very quickly it seemed um, and then they brought over a couple dozen other people which included women and children and like workers and common common people and some nobles as well uh, we know we're at Fairland beyond just the uh, the ruling family as you call it uh, there were like gold beads. We found a gold bead this summer, which is really interesting. Awesome. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so the demographic of death that would be at the settlement could be anyone, basically. Like um, the gravestones that we have, we think that one of them may have been a nobleman to be able to afford a gravestone, but then would they have been carving gravestones for people who could afford them or out people out of remembrance for the small amount of the community that had just died? So <laughs> there's a lot of information we don't know about who was living there really in the early days. Yeah. 
So what was kind of the purpose for the, the settlement? Was it um, like a, a trading post or like what kind of industry were they were they targeting? Mm, um, so George Calvert, who's the one who founded what he called the Colony of Avalon, which is a very whimsical name <laughs> for the place. Um, he was this uh, nobleman in England who worked for the king. I think he was the secretary to the king. I can't remember his exact title. Uh, and he also became the first Lord Baltimore. Um, and his family went on to fi- found a bunch of other settlements in New England, uh, like Baltimore City. And <laughs> <laughs> fancy enough. Yeah. Um, yeah. So he was really interested in like exploration. And I think he had stocks in the East India Trading Company or one of a similar company like that. And he had some money in, I want to say the Virginia company, but I'm not 100% sure. Um, so he was really interested in the, the new worlds, as they would say. Um, so he got the grant from the government um, for this piece of Newfoundland um, after Sir Walter Riley. No, <laughs> uh, Sir William Vaughn, sorry. Ah. Um, had tried to establish a colony here before um, and it didn't. We don't really know where it is. <laughs> Allegedly, they did build something somewhere, but it's debated what town it was in. Um, so he got this land and he was really interested in sort of an economic venture because they knew about the fish stocks. Newfoundland had been a fishing area for migratory fishermen from Europe for the last like 100 years prior to this. Uh, so they they knew about like the wealth of natural resources in the area. So it was basically trying to put like a foothold colony in the area while also exploiting any natural resources they could. Uh, But it wasn't until um, the 1630s when Sir David Kirk took the colony over that it really became like a merchant outpost and being run like a business. Mm. Yeah. So in terms of it being run like a business, um, these were kind of the early venture capitalists, right? Yeah. Yeah. were there any sorts of conflicts with um, the indigenous uh, populations or maybe um, competing uh, colonial interests? Yeah, so Newfoundland has several indigenous groups, um, the Mi'kmaq, who are still here. Um, I'm not sure if they were that far east in the 17th century. I've not read any records talking about them being in that area, but there were the Beothic people who were on the Avalon Peninsula during uh, the 17th century. And there are Beothic hearths at Fairland, but as far as I know, they predate the permanent settlement. And there's no records of them talking about any interactions with Beothic people when Fairland became established as a European town. So as far as we know, um, that was fairly far south for the Beothic people to be. And I think it was really unusual to find the hearth there so it might not have been a traditional territory which is really interesting but at other settlements there were there was talk of trading with the Beothic. um i'm not sure in that period if there were many confrontations uh, but they definitely were down the line and the Beothic people are actually extinct now which is horrible yeah um yeah so they don't exist anymore Um, But there's always talk of, it's very likely that there's still Beothic, um, like, ancestry in the area. Gotcha. So, like, not not quite, like, descendant communities, since you had just mentioned that they're unfortunately extinct, but kind of uh, lineages uh, extending from that contact. Yeah, or or with the Mi'kmaq people as well. There could have been um, groups that were really close together there. 
uh, yeah, the Beothic were, they called them, or <laughs> how they're represented now in the museum and everything is like the red people because they would cover themselves in ochre. Oh, neat. And all of their belongings in ochre, which is really, really cool. Um, but I've never seen any Beothic artifacts at Fairland because it was like so unusual that there were even hearths there from that period. Yeah. Well, you had mentioned um, in some of your blogs and also uh, on, on Twitter um, that you study burial landscapes. So yeah. <laughs> what exactly is a, is a burial landscape and how do you study that? Um, yeah. So I like to say that because I'm not an osteologist. So whenever I was like, I study graves, people start talking to me about bones, which I like have experience excavating, but I'm not an osteologist at all. So I can't, I can't tell you all of the things about bones really. Um, I say burial landscapes as sort of a study of the space sort of in the way that landscape archaeology would study a landscape in a more traditional sense, but yeah. just looking, yeah, the where, where people were buried, perhaps why they were buried there, if it was for a specific purpose and how that, that area itself is treated and interacted with as in form of like a community space. Yeah. <laughs> Very cool. So um, yeah. you, you had mentioned at, at the beginning here that this is probably going to be much more than a thesis. Do you have plans to do continuing research on uh, this, this, um, this research project? Um, potentially. <laughs> um, I'm looking at PhDs down the line, but I really would like to focus more on the, um, like the British Isles side of things, maybe like an earlier period and like the influences that went into the North American European burial landscape during the beginning of the colonial period and like where it was coming from because I touched on it a little bit in sort of like the background section of my thesis but um I'd like to explore it further and see what people were doing during like sort of a tra it was a transitional period in the UK for burials um coming out of the reformation and the English civil war and everything and that was all like being translated into what they were doing in the colonial settlements so I think there's a lot of really interesting work that could be done there but I haven't, I haven't figured out research questions, so I don't have like a PhD lined up yet, but I'm yeah, looking at them. <laughs> it sounds like there's a lot of complexity in terms of like what you could even ask, you know, like one question would be very uh, intermingled with any other question, you know, like uh, if there's changes in, you know, economic strategies or uh, religious or cultural strategies, stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah, I focused a lot on like the religious and like the political backgrounds, but economic stuff for sure. And even just like the spaces that they were in. My thesis topic started out as where are the graves at Fairland? And I was like, well, how can we figure this out? <laughs> and 200 pages later. <laughs> yeah, it sounds easy enough. Like, let's find the graves. And then it's like you keep yeah. pulling that thread and you're like, well, geez, now we've got a whole sweater. Yeah, well, I was only supposed to dig for one season at Fairland and it turned into turned into 10 weeks. <laughs> a little excessive. Yeah. That is really cool. So what kinds of... Um, like perspectives or, or rather like you, you had mentioned some of the, the questions about, you know, the, the spatial approaches, were there mm -hmm. any sort of like theoretical approaches that were particularly um, useful to you in your study? Um, I sort of looked at landscape theory and like traditional landscape archeology, span which has like flack against it for being too rigid and not peopling the landscape enough, just sort of mm -hmm. looking at like images and space. Um, and then, the flip side is like two people, <laughs> like phenomenological aspects oh, yeah. of 
landscape, but um, I really like the idea that a landscape is something that you can't experience from the eyes of someone else. Like it didn't exist for you as it did for this other person. Um, so I spent a lot of time um, in the theory section of my thesis thinking about how like we can we can try and figure out based on like few sheds or standing in a certain spot and being like, well, maybe they put them here because of such and such on this hill. Um, but there's no way, even if we knew what the environment looked like, that we could feel it the same way kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That is really cool. So what are, so then did you use GIS as well? Um, only for mapping my excavation. I've done some GIS in the past, but it was like in the third year of my undergrad. And when mm -hmm. I sat down at the computer, I was like, I can, I, ca I can't, I can't do any of this. How do I do this? <laughs> <laughs> So I just really simply made a site map um, that I need to actually like do a finish up blog post and post it because the map's done now. But <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. speaking of blog posts, um, so I had I had been introduced to your social media um, through, I guess I would call him uh, my my gatekeeper to archaeology. Twitter is uh, John Lowe. He's he's at Archaeocore on Twitter. Um, okay. He posted a picture of hashtag show me your trowel and he <laughs> he gave you a shout out to that. And I was like, oh, that's such a cool idea. So I, I like looked at, you know, looked at your profile and just kept like following the rabbit hole. And I thought that that was such a cool thing. So I got I got into that through show me your trowel. And I guess uh, what what prompted you to do that and what were some of the responses to that uh, to that post specifically yeah oh um well a lot of the volunteers i had this summer and last summer were all uh people who had never excavated before like first or second year archaeology students or grad students that hadn't had any field work yet um so like I did my first field school uh, through the University of Liverpool. So the first trowels I ever used were the kind they use in Britain, which are the WHS. Um, so that's what I use here. And I always get like made fun of for having a really tiny trowel. <laughs> um, so I like in turn try and convert people who have never dug before to the WHS because I uh -huh. think it's really So then we were talking about it and I was like, I'm going to see what happens if I do this on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, it went really well. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. It's almost like baiting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, but like for a place that Newfoundland's nickname is The Rock, and it's um, aptly named because all you hear when you're traveling unless you've miraculously found a spot that's not like 80% rocks, it's just like the tinging of the trowel <laughs> of the rocks. So um, WHS trials are really thick and they work really well for prying rocks out of the ground. <laughs> yeah, so can... the Marshalltown trials that we use in the States are not uh, not so durable in those kinds of yeah. uh, contexts. Yeah. I have one uh, when I was doing CRM in BC. My boss told me to use this so I don't lose my nice one um, in the woods because I'd probably be sad about that. And <laughs> I always thought like prying anything out of the ground, if there was a rock in the way, I always thought it was going to break or snap off the handle. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, I think that that's a really neat uh, thing to, to ask archeologists to, you know, show their trowels because 
there's a lot of stories, you know, like archaeologists love to tell their stories from the field. And what better way to represent that than through a picture in the trowel? So, you know, it's kind of like a picture's worth a thousand words. Uh, and that would be the picture to start all of the archaeology stories. And, okay. you know, like mine, uh, I have one. It's it's an old Marshalltown. I've got several trowels, but I still have the one that I had from the very start, um, my very first field awesome. school. And I use it with students to show um, how tools can tell you a lot about the person who uses them. And so like for me, for example, I'm left-handed. And so you can tell that from my trial, like I, I predominantly awesome. use it in my left hand and you can see examples of handedness in the, the wear patterns on it. And so it's like also, uh, you can look at retouching because I've sharpened it many, many times. And mm -hmm. um, so there's all that going on. And so, you know, when I tell students that, that, you know, like, oh, you can tell that I'm left-handed just by by looking at this trowel. And, and I've also, you know, retouched it many, many times. And so now we're looking at uh, projectile points or other metal uh, tools that, you know, people in the past had used. And, you know, the very same principles apply, except, you know, it's it's just in the past. Uh, so it's, it's kind of a fun thing. Um, and so idea. <laughs> yeah, as I was packing up, I'm getting ready to go in the field later this week. And as I was packing up, I, I looked at, uh, that trowel and then a newer one that's, that's very, very sharp and, and pointy and still is a good bit larger. Uh, mm -hmm. I was like, man, these are both like, <laughs> they've been used by the same person, but the wear patterns are so different on them. So yeah, that's kind of fun. That's awesome. Yeah, I didn't even think of using that as an example of of handedness and stuff. That's so cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, let's talk about archaeology Twitter then. Uh, what what were what's the general uh, reception to you like blogging and tweeting your research? Um, has have you had any like fairly supportive or positive outcomes of that? Yeah, I think it's been it's been pretty good. I'd I'd heard from colleagues that like like last year that academic Twitter was a thing and I had like, I'd had an account for several years, but I hadn't really used it too much. Um, so I was like, Oh, I can use this for archeology. span My Instagram archeology span posts usually do pretty well. I should, I should try Twitter if that's what people are doing. Um, so I started sort of trying to, yeah, just use it to tweet about research stuff. Uh, and I think it's been going pretty well. There was the, um, the archeology span Twitter public Twitter conference. Yeah. I don't know if you that yeah um i did that and i i thought it would just sort of be an interesting thing to participate in and it ended up like consuming my entire day and i was so interested in all of it and i like met so many cool people um even in like even in archaeology in canada that were doing things that i was interested in as well that i got talking to for ages um and i'm submitting a paper based on the the presentation with quotations around it um, that I did for the Twitter conference to a public archaeology journal in the UK uh, because the people editing it saw my my presentation and invited me to do a paper for it. So I thought that was a really cool outcome of that. That um, is cool. <laughs> That's awesome. So it's generated yeah. connections with other researchers kind of related to what you're working on too? Yeah. And there aren't, there aren't that many people in North America that do like burials in the way that I want to look at them. 
Um, especially like if I'm looking at gravestone stuff, I, I'm really interested in text and the way that text is carved and erodes. And there's no one in North America that does that. Uh, so I like using Twitter, I've been able to have chats about research that I'm interested in uh, with lots of people in Europe and in the UK that are actually studying the things that I'm doing. Cause I'm, I'm like the only person at the school that does like colonial burial landscapey anything. Um, and there aren't that many other researchers in North America that do that. Um, recently, I went to a conference in Luxembourg that was like a death and death um, objects. It was called um, Trans Mortality, uh, Materiality and Spatiality of Death was the conference. And there were two people from North America at the entire conference. So I think that like says a lot about the connections you can make online with the community that you want to talk to. Yeah. That is super cool. I know like Twitter's been, um, Twitter's been an incredibly useful kind of forum, I guess you would call it for, for me personally and, and professionally. And, you know, like I had given a shout out to John Lowe, but there's a whole bunch of other, um, you know, archeologists on there who have been incredibly supportive and, um, really good at kind of spurring along that collaborative spirit that I've seen come out of archeology span Twitter, um, so it's been pretty neat. Um, and I, I think that the general vibe is fairly supportive. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that's, that's definitely what I found too. And I like, it's, it's really nice to be able to see that because you always hear about people in academia, like competing with each other for things, but that's definitely like not been overall what I've seen so far. And especially through like academic archeology span Twitter, it's really interesting. Yeah. And how about your blog? Has, has it, um, kind of gone similarly have you has it been received fairly well yeah um apparently a bunch of people in my department read it and i've never had like so many people in public be like hey i read your blog post what why (laughs) (laughs) which is which is really cool but i've been finding it like a nice break um from writing my thesis which is what i've been doing for the last like eight months (laughs) to be able to write something that's not so rigidly academic sounding yeah definitely I've, I've found that to be uh, a similar case. I started my blog when I was in grad school and it was one of those things when like I would reach a block writing my thesis, I would switch over to the blog and I was also writing for a music blog too. So sometimes I just needed to get into a completely different headspace altogether and just like not think about archeology. span Yeah. Yeah. And there's like so many little research things that I want to explore more, but I can't put in my thesis. So I like, throw all the ideas in a blog post so I can like have a forum to discuss them on even just with myself if no one else is looking at it. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, it's good. Well, what have, what are some other experiences that you um, would like to share in terms of like this whole journey for you, like for your background, like getting into this and, and what it's been like going through this? Um, like archaeology in general? Or... <laughs> yeah, archaeology in general and also like you as a person and you as a student. Yeah, um... I wanted to be an archaeologist when I was in grade one, and I never changed my mind, apparently. <laughs> so this this has been the entire goal, and I feel like childhood Robin would be really proud of herself right now. So. <laughs> <laughs> nice, nice. And it's great that yeah. you've written so much down, uh, because it, you know, that's like kind of a historical document for your personal history, you know, like you get to revisit these things. Yeah, for sure. It's really cool. Um, I did part of my undergrad in England, which was really awesome. Um, I, th- I think if 
people are in their undergrad and have the chance to go study archaeology in a different country. That's definitely a really awesome experience and like changes how you see the field, I think, which is really cool. That is really cool. So what are some of the ways that you've seen like your own perception of the field change since you've been you've been keeping your tabs on it for quite some time? Yeah. um, Well, I, I did my undergrad at the University of Calgary in Alberta, and the department there is great. It's merged with anthropology now, which is pretty sad because it was the first archaeology department in Canada. Um, so it's it's back under anthropology, um, or it's half and half or something. But yeah. uh, the, the I'm not sure. <laughs> I left. Um, the department there was really great, but I thought it didn't have as much hands-on stuff as I wanted. And I also went into archaeology at that point wanting to do maritime or Mesoamerican something. Um, and then I saw this field school that was in Ireland and on the Isle of Man with like with burials and Iron Age houses. So I went and did that. And so I learned how to dig in the UK. And then I, I came back and was just like, why am I in this department? <laughs> this isn't what I want to do anymore. Um, so I was really interested in looking at British archaeology and at... Um, yeah, burial burial spaces and basically by association churches um, and church architecture and stuff. So I went and did a year abroad in England. And I think the way that they do schooling there is way more like self-taught. Um, there were less lectures, but it was also really focused on on your research skills more so than I thought we were doing in Calgary. And I came back from from being in England. I went to Durham and... Uh, just like with with way more research ability like uh, than than I thought I was getting in Calgary, which was really cool. Yeah, that is like, really cool. It, that's something that I've noticed. This isn't exactly a criticism of of the way things are done in the states, but um, it it is entirely possible for someone to get through their undergrad without really developing research skills in the states mm-hmm. um, because yeah. that's not exactly the the focus or the kind of means of teaching um, it's it's like you had mentioned uh, kind of the opposite of the way it's done in the UK it's very lecture based and then there's there's a test that just kind of like regurgitates the lecture rather than being self-driven and having to kind of master the material and be able to do something with it um, you know to demonstrate your mastery of the material uh, as it sounds like you had in the UK. So that's, that's really awesome. And I'm sure it set you up with some really strong skill sets when you started grad school, right? Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Like I came back from England and they're like, Oh, we only want like 10 sources on this paper. And I was like, what? what? <laughs> 30 <laughs> kind of thing. And I found that there, they would ask you more like, this is the, the big topic design a project to do less less of like these are the research questions you should address in your paper so it was i think yeah yeah like way more research building skills than than schools in north america sometimes do um but yeah so when going forward for grad school i had, i started talking to my supervisor two years before i applied to come here <laughs> um so we were like developing my research questions and like i was doing background research far beyond what I needed to do for the application to get to the school, I think, <laughs> which was great. Yeah. I had like a step forward in 
already starting my like proposal for my thesis and everything. Yeah, it sounds like you were able to just kind of hit the ground running as soon as you started. Yeah, it was it was awesome. <laughs> nice. Well, as far as like studying burials goes, um, are there are there things that you you did um, along your along the way, like classes that you took or maybe certain perspectives that you took that kind of like helped you out in studying burials? Because it's such a cool uh that's such a cool point to study um and a lot of uh at least in the states uh it's very difficult to study burials because of not just the legal structures but um like it's very very difficult to study pre-contact um burials yeah um so does focusing on like uh historical sites help you in in that regard yeah the the ethics the legal ethics around studying a historic period european burial landscape especially because i'm not looking at bones or looking to exhume remains like if we had found graves at fairyland my goal was to look for evidence of the grave shafts as a soil mark not not actually exhume any remains ah, um, cool yeah yeah so that definitely helps with um <laughs> not having to do ethics approval yeah. <laughs> um but it definitely is something that makes it easier to access um, remains or access uh, a space. Um, and and you wouldn't really want to apply burial landscape sort of like spatial analysis to an indigenous site anyway, I think, um, because you need the express consent of the community and you would want the, the them to come to you wanting you to do this kind of study because it's not something that lots of indigenous communities want to tell researchers about. So I wouldn't even want to like theoretically apply it to a site like that. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Are, are there, I keep falling back on examples in the States just cause that's what I'm familiar with, but um, are there similar kind of considerations in, in Canada as well in terms of like, um, like you had mentioned eth the ethics, but are, are there like uh, laws in place that kind of uh, make it very difficult to study burials? Um, I'm sure I should know more about this. <laughs> I'm not, not sure about, I'm sure there are laws. Um, I know that like you can't, basically you can't unless the community wants you to. Ah. But usually if there's an indigenous burials, you don't, you don't do anything with it. Um, and museums that have historically had indigenous remains in the collections and found them, they're all being repatriated to their communities now, which is amazing. So it's sort of the, the case of like these aren't our people so we don't get them in any way which is yeah that is the main struggle over uh human remains and, and even like not just remains but just uh you know cultural material um yeah that's kind of a tricky uh line to cross um but you had mentioned uh you know that you need kind of the the support of the community does the community around fairyland um have much engagement with that project yeah so the colony land oh, i was holding a pencil and i just broke it um <laughs> <laughs> the the colony of avalon uh foundation is made up of a board of lots of community members um and a lot of people who live in fairyland it's not a very large community um, they, they do work at the colony in the summer um there's lots of tour guides and people that work there uh, and they hire like high school students from the area to help in the collections facility and stuff over the summer with money from the government um, when they can get grants for it. So there's definitely like a large community involvement. And when they have the AGM, which we haven't had this year yet, I don't think, 
um, it's a huge turnout of local people who want to come and participate in it because they they all have known that this site was here for so long. Um, but the excavations formally with the university didn't really start until the 80s. So they've all like seen it opening up throughout their lives and everything. So it's, it's, it's right in the heart of the settlement as well. So it's, it's really cool to see like so many community members come out and be like, I worked here when I was in high school or I used to work here for like a decade doing tours and I know all about this kind of thing. Cause like, it's so, it's such a part of the whole community's um, livelihood really. That is really cool to have a uh, heritage tourism industry that's just kind of rooted in the oral traditions and, and just like the lived experiences of the community. Yeah. Oh, it's great. We had, um, we had someone come out recently who was a tour guide who has a family member who works at the site now and pointed across the Harbor and was telling me about their great uncle or grandfather that used to row sheep out to one of the islands that has an 18th century military <laughs> fortification on it, um, to leave the sheep on the Island to graze all summer or spring. And then, they're, apparently, they're the best tasting sheep in Newfoundland. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that is super cool. It's great. They auction them off, but, like, I don't think any of us have a chance of getting one of them. They're they're high. They go really quickly. I bet. <laughs> you, you've got to make some pretty uh, high-level friends to have a little uh, cookout at the end of uh, yeah. your next field season. Oh, definitely. We um, Last year was the 25th anniversary of when my supervisor um, started working at Fairland. <laughs> so we had uh, we had a traditional Newfoundland Jigs dinner on site and everything, a little boil up um, <laughs> with salt beef. All the traditional foods, salt beef, I find horrifying. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's terrible. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's definitely an acquired taste. <laughs> Oh, it was so bad, <laughs> but the whole community was out, um, and it was it was just like a really really nice experience to see so many people like wandering around the site who were living in the area for years. That is super awesome. Well, um, before we start to wrap up the show, were there any other things that you wanted to express that maybe um, kind of advice to undergrads that are looking to pursue a similar path? Mm. Um. I would say get some field experience as soon as you can. <laughs> um, I've had loads of people who were doing graduate work that had never dug before, which seems really odd that you can get that far in archaeology yeah. without having excavated anything. Um, I did my first field, well, my only field school after my first year of my undergrad because I wanted to make sure I wasn't going to hate this. So <laughs> I would say go dig as soon as possible. Yes, go dig a hole. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and and do a lot of research along the way too. It sounds like that yeah. is, uh, you know, even if that's not really um, the way you're being pushed, uh, you should pursue it anyhow uh, and find ways to find that. I I've kind of found that um, by accident uh, through my studies because I ended up taking a lot of independent studies. Mm -hmm. to uh get through um get through the programs both in undergrad and in grad school and uh, those were totally research driven and there were times when i was like oh my god i've never done this before uh can you can you kind of just back up so many steps and just show me how to do this and <laughs> i had some pretty supportive professors along the way that uh kind of helped build up those skills that's awesome yeah i would say like 
if you if people want to do a research project for a course and they can't find any sources, it's because no one's done it before and that you should probably do it. <laughs> <laughs> I feel yeah. like they handed in a lot of papers that had like five sources and it was because no one had been asking whatever question I was wanting to talk about. But that's like shouldn't be a deterrent from pursuing it yourself. Oh, exactly. It's all the more reason to be asking that question. Yeah. Yeah, like I did a project in my undergrad that was like basically a proposal, but it was a class. It was like a final paper for a course, but it was a it was basically a project proposal. Um, and then after the after the course was over, my my uh, professor for that course, who's now my co-author on a paper about this topic, um, told me to go for a research grant in the second year of my undergrad to do this project because she thought it was really interesting. Um, and I ended up getting it. And then I did like, how long was I there for? I, I it was more than six weeks, <laughs> um, in Wales and Ireland doing field work by myself. So wow. I don't think, yeah. <laughs> That's a super so, rare opportunity. That sounds pretty awesome. Yeah. Uh, we submitted the paper last year. Um, and it's been in peer review for a while, <laughs> for a while. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I will be sure to uh, repost it, retweet it, and, and share it on all the media when it's uh, when it's finally available. Thank you. I um, need to check up on its status, actually. <laughs> nice. Well, how can people find you online? You've got uh, quite a presence. Uh, um, Twitter is Robin underscore LA, and Instagram is Robin S-A-L-A. Just basically sections of my name chopped up. Um, and my research blog is spade in the grave at wordpress.com. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank yeah. you so much for your time. And uh, I look forward to staying in touch and, and seeing what else you've got. For sure. Thanks for having me. Thanks again for listening to another episode of Go Dig a Hole. As always, you can contact me by email at Christopher at GoDigAHole.com or on the Facebook page, Twitter, Instagram, or Snapchat. We've got all the social media bases covered, all at GoDigAHole. Don't forget to check out the blog at GoDigAHole.com for long-form companion posts to most of the episodes. Special thanks to Louisville post-punk band Invaders for letting me use their song Dig a Hole for the show's bumper music. Check them out on Bandcamp and download their album by the same name, Dig a Hole. This show was produced and edited by me, your host, Christopher Sims. <laughs> <laughs>